I just hope I've got everything right. Here comes the theme song. From Madison, Wisconsin in the United States of Global Hegemony, it's Didactic Syncast with your host, Eric P. Hello, Earthlings, and welcome to the Didactic Syncast, your overview of everything important on the planet Earth. I'm Eric S. Piotrowski. Uh, welcome to the Didactic Syncast. So for the people watching on Facebook Live, you just heard a bunch of silence, but that's because I was playing the intro song for the Syncast, which I'm recording at the same time. So those of you listening, you can't see these cool hand gestures I'm doing. For those of you watching live, uh, you can't hear the sound effects. So I know it's crazy, and ideally I would be able to broadcast the sound effects, but I'm not that advanced yet. I, I, I don't know what I'm doing here. But anyway, uh, yeah, I'm Eric S. Piotrowski, a writer and educator in Wisconsin, USA. I am known as Duke Scath in the world of video games and Twitter, a.k.a. Scartol in the world of Wikipedia and Reddit. Today is Wednesday, the 27th of January, 2021. And on this program, I bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and my opinions on topics like current events, war, human rights, economics, education, hip-hop music, and killer robots. So buckle up and let's get started. Now, here's where I normally would put a sample from the DOC and his song, Lend Me an Ear, but I don't have it queued up, so I'm going to skip past that. So, ah, uh, there's so much going on in the world right now. And yet, because the president of the United States is now not Donald Trump anymore, I feel this great weight that has been lifted off my shoulders, and I hope you do too. Uh, those of you who listened to my conversation with Greg DeLacy on the last syncast, thank you very much. I really appreciate all the feedback people have given. Uh, it was an excellent discussion, and I was thinking about a lot of the things that he said and a lot of the things I said and some of the things I wish I had said. And I want to start by sort of following up a little bit with that. Because it occurred to me that what's most important to me, I mean, I did talk about empathy on the syncast with Greg. And, and I don't know if I really stressed enough how important empathy is and how it's really at the heart of everything. Because as I said to Greg, you know, we all have empathy for people closest to us. But what we need to do is expand our notion of empathy. And what I've come to understand is that what I believe in is radical militant empathy. So just to be clear about each of those terms, let me break them down one by one, okay? Empathy. Hopefully everybody knows what empathy is, but just in case people aren't totally clear. Uh, empathy is the ability to sort of put yourself in other people's shoes, to feel what other people are feeling. And we all do that instinctively as human beings, right? That's just a natural part of being a human. When you're a kid and you hear a baby crying, your instinct is to go over and help that baby, right? Somebody's in pain. I want to help them. Over time, the world kind of beats us down a little bit and we feel less and less of that empathy for other people, except for the folks closest to us, right? Because people are annoying and people are hard to like and people do things for all sorts of reasons and people are mean to us. And, and we come to think over time that, you know, I can't be nice to everybody because I'm too busy trying to take care of myself and the people around me. And that's understandable. The, the extreme version of this is the world intentionally kind of beating out of us some natural empathy, right? So, for instance, in the movie Jarhead, uh, when Jake Gyllenhaal's character, jo uh, Anthony Swaffer, who wrote the book, which is a great book, everybody should read it, um, he goes to uh, basic training and Jamie Foxx's character, the staff sergeant, says, I know you've been told thou shalt not kill, but I have to tell you, forget that noise, right? F that S. Because in war, you really can't have empathy for the enemy, right? You have to be willing to hurt people and kill people 
if they're coming to kill you, right? That makes sense. The the and so there's a process of you know. I, I've never been through it. I don't know what basic training is like. Those of you who have served in the military, you can tell us what your experience was like. But from what I've heard, it involves some dehumanization and a little brutalization uh, and breaking people down so you can build them back up. The world does that to us to an extent. So that's one of the things about empathy is that the world kind of beats our empathy out of us. But it's an important thing, right? And, and I think one of the best things we can do as human beings is to love each other because we care if people who are not us, suffer, right? And we don't want other people to suffer because we don't want to suffer ourselves. And the golden rule, of course, is you do unto others as you would want done to you. So that's empathy. Now, what's radical empathy? Well, as I think I said during the conversation with Greg DeLacy, uh, the rapper Capital D from Chicago once said, quote, my father taught me, kid, be a man, protect your family. But what if my family is all of humanity, right? So that's an important part of it, uh, to, to broaden our definition of empathy, to broaden our sense of family so that we don't think only in terms of the people directly next to us, but we think also of the people across the street and the people on the other side of town, right? That's an important part of it. And it's much more difficult to have empathy for people who are very unlike yourself. And when things get chaotic, we tend to cling to the people who are very much like ourselves. Uh, we want to have you know, the people near us um, safe and the people far away from us, you know, we, we care a little less about. That's just human nature, again. The, the, but, but the beauty of humanity is that we are capable of expanding that circle and thinking beyond our own backyard and thinking about, you know, okay, uh, I care also about the people in, on the other side of town, right? Which is tricky and rare, right? But think about wherever you live, whether it's Sun Prairie, Madison, Chicago, Gainesville, Tallahassee, Wolverhampton, London, you know, Ballymena, wherever. Think about the people on the other side of town. And you probably don't think about them very much. I know I don't think about the people on the other side of the town where I live, but we should because our destiny is tied into their destiny. Right? And as the saying goes, no one is free unless we're all free. And that's why it's really about long-term self-interest. Empathy at its core is not just about, I care about other people because it's a good thing to care about other people. Mm. Yes, it's true, but you can't live like that every day, just going by some abstract principles. You have to remember that homelessness sucks, not only because other people are suffering from homelessness, but because your life will be better when there's no people who are homeless, because it's less likely somebody's going to be desperate enough to jack your ride. Um, yeah, and our economy does better when people aren't homeless and starving and destitute. And our economy, you know, our whole nation, our world does better when people aren't sick and lacking medical care. And, you know, there's all these reasons, in the, you know, but, but they require you to go beyond your own little circle and bubble. So that's radical empathy. Okay, well, what's militancy? Well, I could talk about militancy all day, and I know you don't want me to, so I won't. But basically, in a nutshell, militancy is the notion that I'm going to insist that people act a certain way, right? So Martin Luther King was, 
he actually was kind of militant in certain ways, but we don't have time to get into that. Uh, but certainly Malcolm X was a militant, right? Malcolm X was militant in his views because he said, look, I'm not trying to appeal to people's better nature necessarily. I'm trying to win a power struggle and demand we demand our right on this earth to be a man, to be respected as a human being, to be given the rights of a human being in this society, on this earth, on this day, which we intend to bring into existence by any means necessary. And I know that whole speech because it's quoted in a song by the rapper Paris. So that's why I know that whole speech by heart. But anyway, you know, that's militancy. I insist I'm not taking no for an answer. I am not compromising, etc. And that is my kind of empathy. I am a militant empath. Because militancy, I gave a friend of mine a bumper sticker one time that said, militant uh, agnostic, I don't know and neither do you. Because a militant says, it's not enough that I live by this code, you also need to live by it. Now, it can be very dangerous to become militant about things because, as I said before, like we get this certainty about us and that's not healthy, right? So ISIS militants are very militant about, you know, this world would be better if we had a caliphate and, you know, everybody lived according to my interpretation of the Quran and yada, yada, yada. That's not healthy, right? White supremacists are militant and that's horrible because they say we should have, you know, Barney Gumble on The Simpsons once said, all I'm saying is when we, he's really drunk and talking to Lisa Simpson. All I'm saying is when we die, there's going to be a planet for the white people, planet for the black people, planet for the Chinese, and we're all going be a lot happier that's militant white supremacy right because it's this idea that like this is how things ought to be and i'm nervous about saying i am a militant empath because i don't like to tell people how to live i don't like to tell people like this is the right way for every human to exist but on the other hand am i wrong is it is it untrue that we should all be empathetic toward each other and i think that one of the horrible things that people do especially people who vote for trump or support trump or who act like Trump wasn't that bad, or who talk about how now is the time for us to come together and respect the norms of Congress. Oh my goodness, Mitch McConnell has no business talking about the norms of Congress. He's got some nerve. He's shameless. And he's shameless because he knows it doesn't matter if he's a hypocrite, but we'll come back to that. Um, is a lack of empathy. Is a lack of concern for the families being torn apart by Trump's racist border wall. It's a lack of empathy for the people who lost loved ones to coronavirus. It's a lack of empathy for the people who are struggling to pay rent and college debt because of this coronavirus disaster. And they're trying to jump to the economy question without dealing with the virus question. But as some of us have been saying over and over again, you cannot fix the, vi uh, the economy until you fix the virus. So... Yeah, that's some thoughts I've been having about radical militant empathy, and I wanted to explain it on camera and on the microphone. You're welcome. I should say also that two days ago was my birthday, and I don't really care about birthdays very much, to be honest, because I'm glad I made it around the sun again, but I'm grateful every day that I wake up. You know, every rotation of the earth is a blessing, really. Every day is my birthday, man. And as soon as I said that, my chinny on the veteran gamers was like, oh, God, shut up. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Mike Chin might be on this show, by the way. I'd love to have him on the Syncast. He was talking about it recently. And we, we, I'd love to make that happen. Let's do it. Mike Chin, come on the Syncast. Why not? That's a Peter Galky line. You're welcome. Why not? Garrett knows what I'm talking about. Anyway, and by the way, I throw out things and I'm just like, eh, so-and-so. And I mentioned epistemology last time and Nick Carpenter was like, epistemology. I love that sort of thing because I love just throwing out stuff and seeing if anybody picks it up. So, um, yeah, Frontier Ruckus. Anybody listen to Frontier Ruckus? Anyway, Okay, uh, <laughs> yeah, moving on. What was I talking about? Oh, yeah, so one of the best birthday presents ever. Well, yesterday I got a belated birthday present with a snow day. I thought snow days were done because we're doing distance learning. Anytime there's a snow day, we can't travel, but okay, I can 
teach from my room here. But the school had not finished distributing materials for the new semester. And we're doing this hybrid model in K through second grade. So the school district was like, we need a snow day because we're in this period of transition. And I was like, yes, snow day. Uh, And I got a lot of work done. (laughs) That's what you do on a snow day, right? You get work done. What am I, Amy Santiago? Anybody watch Brooklyn Nine-Nine? Anyway, uh, yeah, so it was nice to have a snow day. And today, on Wednesday, we do uh, work from home. And so I'm taking a little break from schoolwork to uh, record this. They are going to be bringing students back in February to our school. And I'm a little nervous about that because we've seen these new strains of the novel coronavirus coming from South Africa and Brazil and the UK. And they're more contagious and they might be more deadly and they may not respond as well to the vaccines. And I'm nervous. But on the other hand, they say that in Wisconsin, hopefully, touch wood, teachers uh, will be vaccinated starting on March 1st, at least. Uh, And a lot can happen in the next month. Right. So. I'm hoping that maybe it's faster than that. We've asked for them to delay the bringing back of students until all the staff are vaccinated, but they said no, can't get into it. Uh, But it is, uh, yeah, that's just my own personal uh, reflection about where we're at with the coronavirus and teaching and all that stuff. As I mentioned, in case you didn't realize, Joe Biden is now the president. And on his first day, he started doing all these things. And I was like, yes, hooray. So he got us back in the World Health Organization. We were never really out of it, but Trump had said, we're leaving. And then it takes a year to actually leave. So Trump, Biden's like, uh-uh, forget that mess. And so now we're going to stay in the World Health Organization. Yay. And I could talk about why that's a good thing later. But uh, John Oliver did a really good piece about uh, the World Health Organization, why it matters. And so if you want to know why I'm happy that we're going back into the World Health Organization, watch that piece. Um, so I'm going to make a note, John Oliver, WHO, to put a link in that in the show notes. Um, yeah, so uh, we're rejoining the Paris Climate Accord. Yay! It, the Paris Climate Accord, for those who don't know, was a very mild set of goals that countries are going to kind of aim at. And most countries haven't come close. And it's basically a tiny little baby step toward the kind of dramatic action we need to be doing to change everything to stop this ecological catastrophe that we are hurtling toward. But it's better than nothing. So it's good that we're going back into that. Um, yeah, he halted construction on the racist border wall with Mexico. Yay. Uh, I don't I haven't heard specifics about him trying to reunite families at the border, but I hope he does. And he said that uh, he's going to I think I don't remember the wording, but basically he's trying to end government, federal government use of private prisons, which is a mostly symbolic step. Uh, my Twitter timeline was immediately filled with all these sort of prison abolitionist saying this does nothing this is just a pr move and and i'm like you're probably right but on the other hand it's a good step it's a good symbolic gesture we should celebrate that and then say okay here's why it's insufficient and keep pushing yes okay but the point is it's so nice to turn on the tv every day and or watch the news and be like i don't hate the words coming out of the president's mouth yay now don't get me wrong. The president's probably making a lot of decisions also about drone strikes and whatever uh, that I disagree with. And I don't have details about that right now. But the point is that uh, he's mandating masks and he's reversing the Muslim travel ban, which was racist as heck. And I know it's racist, by the way. Some people on Twitter were like, you said that the, it's a Muslim ban. It's not a Muslim ban. Yes, it is a Muslim ban. And I know that for a fact, because when Trump was running for office, he put on his platform promises to America, whatever. He said, we're going to have a complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. And that's why the first one was ruled unconstitutional, because he had said it's a ban of Muslims entering this country. So don't tell me that on his third try, he managed to sneak in one other country that's not majority Muslim and suddenly it's not a Muslim ban. Of course it is. If I smack every kid in the face who enters my classroom who's wearing glasses 
and you realize I'm only, and I had said earlier, I'm going to smack every kid with glasses when they walk in my classroom. And then I smack a kid who's not wearing glasses. And you go, Mr. P, you're smacking everybody who's wearing glasses. That's not fair. And I go, I'm not smacking. I smacked Bobby. He's not wearing glasses. You wouldn't be like, well, I guess you're right. Okay. You're not angry at people who wear glasses. So that, yeah. Um, right. So that's good. Biden's doing some good things. Hooray for Biden. Unfortunately, something that's not good was this news story I saw about 23 die in Norway after receiving the COVID vaccine. Uh, This is from January 16th, and it said health officials are looking more closely into the deaths of nearly two dozen people after receiving their first dose of the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine in Norway. A total of 23 people died within days of receiving their first dose, the Norwegian Medicines Agency announced in a statement. Of those deaths, 13 were nursing home patients who were at least 80 years old and were apparently related to the side effects of the vaccinations, according to health officials. Now, you know. We have a problem with ageism in our society, and especially when we talk about the coronavirus, a lot of people have been like, well, most of the people dying have been old people. As if that's okay. As if we can just be like, well, they're old, so whatever. Uh, It's such a sick way of thinking about it. So the idea that, well, these people have, you know, a lot of these have died because they're old folks and, uh, you know, it's just side effects. Well, that's still worrying. And I'm trying to keep an eye on this news story because, you know, we shouldn't be glib about the potential drawbacks to this vaccine, even if it is going to hopefully save thousands of lives. And I mean, let's also remember it didn't need to be this bad folks. We shouldn't even be here. I shouldn't be at home today. I should be in my classroom and I'm not in my classroom because Donald Trump made fun of people for wearing masks. He didn't have a plan to deal with this virus. He just let it spin out of control, let every governor do whatever they wanted and, and things got worse and worse and worse. And it's been dragging on and on and on. If everybody had been wearing a mask, we would be done with this by now. We would be back to normal like things are in South Korea and New Zealand. So anyway, um, yeah, that's worrying. Uh, hopefully we will get more information about these side effects and find ways to help people not die from the side effects of the coronavirus vaccine. Meanwhile, Hot Pockets have been recalled for possible glass and plastic contamination. Hot Pockets. Now, Hot Pockets apparently are now made by Nestle Foods, and you should never buy anything from Nestle, ever. No Nestle Crunches, no Nestle Quick, no Nestle nothing, okay? And let me tell you why, okay? Because I don't know if this is still the case, but I believe it is. But I know it was true for many years, okay? Nestle makes this baby milk product, right? And they want to sell a lot of it. So what they have done in the past, and I believe they're still doing now, is they will go to these third world countries and they'll tell new mothers, hey, don't give your child breast milk. Give them our Nestle milk. It's fortified with nutrients and all this stuff. And one of two things very frequently happens. One, the mothers will mix that powder with contaminated local water, unfiltered, unclean, unsafe water. That would be safe for adults, but it's not safe for babies. And when they mix the powder in with the water, Uh, the babies get sick and die. Or the other thing that sometimes happens with these uh, Nestle milk uh, samples, they give samples out to new mothers and stuff. Um, The baby gets, uh, it's fine. The water's great. The baby's healthy. Everything's great. And so they go home with the baby, but the mother's breasts have stopped producing enough milk and the free packets run out. And so suddenly the mothers have no milk to feed the baby and the baby dies. Both of those outcomes are atrocious and horrible. They are basically crimes against humanity. There is a group called Baby Milk Action, which has tried for years to get them to stop. And uh, basically, uh, Nestle has said, no, we're not going to stop. We want to make money off of these third world mothers. And it's sick and twisted. So that's why you should never buy anything from Nestle. 
Um, yeah. But meanwhile, back to the hot pockets. Uh, Jim Gaffigan, am I right? Nestle Prepared Foods, that's the name of the company, Nestle Prepared Foods. Think of the name of that, what a weird name. Anyway, they have issued a recall of their pepperoni hot pockets over the potential for contamination by extraneous materials, quote unquote. U.S. Department of Agriculture's Food Safety and Inspection Service announced Friday, FSIS. It was originally called the Ingestion Safety and Inspection Service, but then the acronym would be ISIS. That's not true, by the way. I just made a joke about ISIS, that's all. I just couldn't resist the temptation to make an ISIS joke. You know me. I'm always joking about the ISIS. <laughs> For instance, there was once an Egyptian goddess, and then she turned into a Wahhabist terrorist. Anyway. All right. Uh, so the company is recalling the prop the popular product. Is it really that popular? I guess it is. Mom, more hot packets. South Park. Over reports that there are rogue pieces of plastic and glass in some hot pockets. The FSIS received four reports from customers alleging finding materials in their hot pockets, leading to the recall of approximately 762,615 pounds of the not ready to eat items. So far, only one minor injury has been reported related to the contamination, but the FSIS is encouraging consumers who purchase the product to use caution and avoid consumption. Quote, this product should be thrown away or returned to the place of purchase, the FSIS wrote. So if you've got pepperoni hot pockets, take them back to the store. They have to give you their money back. Um, they were produced in such a buzz. Blah, blah, blah. Consumers were warned to look for hot pockets with a label that reads Nestle Hot Pockets brand sandwiches. Are they sandwiches? Come on. We've often talked about how hot dogs are sandwiches or not. And certainly hot pockets are not sandwiches. Anyway, premium pepperoni made with pork, chicken, and beef, pizza, garlic, buttery crust. What a weird collection of words for a food label with a best used before date of February 2022. The FSIS has contaminated, classified the contaminated hot pockets as a class one high risk problem and urges consumers to seek medical attention if they come in contact with the product. Uh, Nestle Foods, which acquired Hot Pockets in 2002, could not be immediately reached for comment. I'll bet they couldn't. Why? Because this is the formula. OK, uh, those of you who listen to this show know the formula. It's from Fight Club, right? It goes like this. A is the uh, number of failures in the field. B is the uh, death rate from when things fail. C is the average out-of-court settlement for every time someone dies from their product. A times B times C equals X. If X is less than the cost of a recall, we don't do one. That's how every company operates. Okay, They don't really care so much about your health and safety unless it impacts their bottom line. And if it does, then they'll take the, less cost of, the, the more cost-effective route and do a recall. So that's why Nestle's doing this recall. I mean, I guess they were forced by a government agency to do it this time. So government is not always the problem, right? Regulation matters. All right. Uh, there was a piece in the USA Today, which was really good. And it came out on January 22nd, you know, two days after the inauguration, right? It was 3.15 a.m. on January 22nd. So it was really the day after. But anyway, up late. Um, yeah. And the headline is reunite families separated at the border and purge cruelty in the name of justice. And this is a good piece by a guy named Elliot Williams. I don't really know who he is, but anyway, uh, it talks about the separation of children from their families and how this must be a top priority for uh, dealing with the Trump administration. We have known about the family separation policy for years now. However, details revealed in a new report by the Justice Department's Inspector General make clear how low the administration sank in carrying out the historically cruel policy. It also shows how the president didn't act alone. Senior Justice Department officials in blessing a policy that was singular in its cruelty have stained the Justice Department and the ideals on which it was founded. Now, let's just be clear, folks. The DOJ 
has been stained for a long time, right? It worked on COINTELPRO. It's worked on all sorts of things, right? Uh, there are a lot of horrible things the DOJ has done in the past. Uh, and I'm not a fan of like the usual way of doing things, right? When Biden was running for president, he said, trust me, fundamentally, nothing's going to change. I'm not like that. I'm not into that. I want things to fundamentally change. But uh, nevertheless, this person's making an important point. So, you know, getting back to where we were before Trump is a good first step. We got to keep going beyond that and not pretend like the DOJ had some crystalline, pure record before that. All right. So this report provides a window into how the family separation policy was a result of a single-minded focus on increasing prosecutions at the border. The administration crafted a zero-tolerance policy, which would knowingly rip children from their parents before prosecuting them, all as a means of frightening adults from coming to the country. Most troubling was the fact that, according to the report, senior Justice Department officials still barreled ahead in spite of warnings that the government was well aware of the likely tragic fallout of the policy. Okay. Now, some people, when I start talking about uh, undocumented immigration, people say, well, they're breaking the law. They're breaking the law. Not all of them. Okay. In fact, a lot of people coming into this country without proper documentation are not breaking the law. Did you know that? Applying for asylum is not illegal in this country or any country. It is part of your human rights to apply for asylum. If, if, you are being prosecuted by the government of another country and they are threatening to kill you and you manage to get out of that country and come to this country, you are allowed under U.S. and international law to plead your case and say, here's why I should be given asylum, okay? You don't have to get asylum, but you have the right to plead for asylum, okay? And the government can, yes, keep you in contain containment and so forth. And that's why the government couldn't just immediately send people away because, you have to process their claims for asylum. And of course, Trump made fun of people claiming asylum and just the demonization of people trying to get out of El Salvador to escape, you know, gangs that are threatening their children or whatever. Uh, it's just heartbreaking and it's heartless and it's evidence why you should never vote for Trump or anybody like him. But um, it's very important that we're clear that a lot of people applying, you know, to come into this country, if you're applying for asylum, it's not illegal. So there's not even a question of breaking the law. Those people are just wrong if they're claiming that everybody coming in this country is breaking the law. They're not. Um, so the article, the opinion piece goes on. This approach, arrest, separate, and deport first, ask questions later, was rooted in the erroneous notion that our immigration system is nothing more than an arm of the criminal justice system and that deterring people from coming to the United States is its principal objective. Consider, for instance, Attorney General Jeff Sessions' statement in May 2018 that, quote, we need to take away children and Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein's statement a week later to subordinates that prosecutors should still have brought cases despite the children being barely more than infants. The report reminds us that Trump's obsessive opposition to immigration, but only some immigration from some countries, so easily eliminated the line between enforcing the law and being cruel. So I won't read the whole piece, but it's a very good article. And uh, it's a reminder of, you know, some of the worst stuff that Trump ever did. And he did a lot of horrible things. All right. Next up, uh, the Associated Press had a really good piece called uh, Explainer, Why Navalny is a Thorn in the Kremlin Side. So for those of you who don't know, there's this guy named, what's his first name? Um, Alexei Navalny, uh, who has been an opposition leader to Putin in Russia. And I heard a talk from the members of Pussy Riot, the punk rock group who came to the United States and they did a stop in Madison and they told some horrifying stories because they had been sent to a gulag, basically, this horrifying prison camp in Siberia or wherever. 
uh, and it was just, you know, the stories they told were not about themselves. They were about the people they met in these prisons. And it was just heartbreaking. And the acts of resistance that people are taking in Russia to try to stand up to Putin. Because a lot of us in the United States, we think about Putin as being like a goofball, like, oh, he's got his shirt off on a horse. What a wacky guy. But he is a ruthless dictator who has basically installed himself as leader for life, kind of, in Russia. And he's got to go. He's a dictator just as much as... Uh, you know, Duterte in the Philippines, um, as uh, Xi in China. It's it's disgusting to see the way he's consolidated power and the horrible things he's done with that power. So this guy, Navalny, I love him because he's he's an opposition leader, right? He's trying to end Putin's uh, regime and he's he's making progress, which is great to see. Um, he got poisoned by probably by Putin or his people and uh, he was um, he had spent five months in Berlin recovering from a nerve agent poisoning, but he went back to uh, Russia and he said um, that he had to do it because it would have been wrong for him to fight Putin in exile. I'm trying to find the quote here. Uh, here we go. He said he didn't leave Russia by choice, but he rather ended up in Germany in an intensive care box. He said he never considered the possibility of staying abroad. Quote, it doesn't seem right to me that Alexei Navalny calls for a revolution from Berlin, he explained in an interview in October, referring to himself in the third person. Terry loves love. Brooklyn Nine-Nine, right? If I'm doing something, I want to share the risks with people who work in my office. What a beautiful thing. If only all of us had that kind of radical empathy to say, if I'm going to ask other people to do this, I also need to do this. Yes. Thank you, Alexei Navalny. Thank you for fighting and for helping people of Russia to stand up to Putin. And they've, there have been some huge protests in Russia. It's beautiful to see. The cops, of course, are cracking down just like they did here last summer. Uh, and just like they do anytime, actual power is threatened. But I wish the people of Russia a lot of luck. I wish the people of Belarus a lot of luck against Lukashenko and the people of the Philippines luck against... Um, Duterte and the people of Bolivia, luck against, uh, br um, um, Brazil against Bolsonaro and the people of China, especially the Uyghurs, uh, good luck and power in their fight against the Xi human rights abuses regime. And finally, I know it's only 30 minutes, which is short for a syncast, but it's long for a Facebook Live post. Uh, I want to share with you an article that my friend uh, Jason Galar has shared with me. Because it says so much about how the stock market works right now. Now, those of you who listen to the Syncast know that I talk a lot about the stock market and especially high frequency trading. So for those of you who don't know, here's what high frequency trading is. You ready? Okay. There's these robots and they trade stocks constantly and they hold them for a fraction of a second in order to make a fraction of a penny, right? And they do this over and over all day long, every day, like all day. They're just trading, buy, sell, 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 buy, sell. What are they buying based on? What are they selling based on? Nobody knows. There is, we have no idea what these robots are trading based on because the software, the algorithms that they use are trade secrets. So every company that runs these robots, and there are a lot of them, they all have different algorithms and they scour social media, they scour news reports, they scour, you know, all, you know, weather patterns, they scour all kinds of data and they try to figure out, okay, this thing happened five minutes ago. It's going to make the stock of this company go up a little bit. I'll buy five shares of that. We'll go up two cents each. I'll sell it and I'll make 10 cents or I don't know math. That's, that's what they're doing all day long. These high frequency trading robots. And so I call them psychopathic robots because they're, they're trading based on who knows what there have been news stories. And I've talked about them on previous shows where 
you know, there's a report about, you know, like a bomb in uh, Baltimore. And because there's a company that does security in D.C., bomb near D.C., oh, God, sell that stock. And the stock company, the price of the stock for the company just plummets. Based on this report about a thing in Baltimore that has nothing to do with this company in D.C., but because it's nearby and there's this news report that mentioned security in D.C., these robots were like, sell, sell, sell. And so it just tanked. It's unbelievable. That was a flash crash in 2010. And I'm amazed that we haven't had more flash crashes because I think they're coming. All the people who love high frequency trading keep saying, well, the robots are, you know, the markets are, they make their own equilibrium. No, they don't. 2008 taught us that. But anyway, this isn't about high frequency trading. This is about a different kind of stock trading that is equally horrifying. You ready? Here we go. The article is on uh, marker.medium.com. Uh, anybody can post a medium, but Marker is a publication on Medium, and not anybody can necessarily get on there. And I don't know much about this publication, Marker, but it's a really interesting article, and it's got receipts. And this person, James Surowicki, uh, posted it one day ago. He's been uh, he's the author of a book called The Wisdom of Crowds. I've been a business columnist for Slate and The New Yorker and written for a wide range of other publications. So he seems to have some bona fides. In any case, here's the piece he wrote. It's about GameStop, the company that sells video games. And the headline is, The GameStop fiasco proves we're in a meme stock bubble. There's a phrase I never thought I'd hear. Meme stocks, meme markets, right? Okay, so here's what he writes. GameStop is a struggling, kind of boring, mid-sized retailer stuck in a legacy business, selling physical video games. They're kind of like the blockbuster video games, right? But it's also pretty much the only company anyone on Wall Street is talking about right now. After its stock rose 160% in a matter of hours on Monday morning to an all-time high of $159. By day's end, GameStop's price had been cut by more than half, but that still left it up more than 300 percent this year and almost 3,000 percent from its 52-week low, and it was up another 15 percent at Tuesday's open. It isn't GameStop's precipitous rise, impressive as that has been, that has everyone fascinated. Instead, it's what's fueling that rise, concentrated buying by thousands upon thousands of small individual investors who are using sites like Reddit and Robinhood, and I don't know what the heck Robinhood is, uh, it's nothing to do with taking from the rich and giving to the poor, I promise you that to drive up what are now being called meme stocks. GameStop is the best known of these meme stocks simply because its gains have become so outrageous. But it was preceded last year by Hertz and Kodak. I didn't even know Kodak was still a company, right? Which, despite having struggling businesses, saw their stock prices soar when they became Reddit darlings. And now stocks like AMC, Nokia, and BlackBerry, which, yes, is still in business, have also caught Redditors fancy. It is easy to see the meme stock boom is just a speculative bubble and evidence of how the current stock market has lost touch with reality. Yep. Speculative bubbles in so-called story stocks are, after all, familiar things on Wall Street. In the late 1950s, uranium stocks soared, followed by a few years later by bowling stocks and then RV stocks. In 1969, a company called Skyline Homes saw its shares rise 20-fold. And we all know what happened to internet stocks in the late 90s. But in fact, what's happening with meme stocks is very different from those previous crazes. In a classic speculative craze, investors may take cues from each other. The fact that everyone is buying internet stocks makes you think it's smart to buy internet stocks. But they're not working together to make stock prices rise. With meme stocks, on the other hand, that's exactly what's happening. The small investors on the R Wall Street Bets subreddit, which has 2 million subscribers, and other sites are taking part in a conscious collective effort to drive the prices of these stocks up. 
No one is in charge of this effort, though of course some voices are louder than others. But it is a self-organized campaign with people using the message boards to communicate with each other, encourage each other, and reassure each other, thus the many posts on our Wall Street bets admonishing fellow autists, their self-mocking term for each other, to not lose their nerve and keep holding GameStop's stock. Thus, threads with titles, we are the captains now, and have no fear, GME gang, we are consolidating in preparation for tomorrow's moon landing, and GME, it never has to end. In other words, what's happening with GameStop looks less like a speculative bubble and more like a contemporary internet-mediated version of the bull raids that were characteristic of the stock market in the early 20th century, when organized pools of investors would combine to drive stock prices up. Now, that's as much of the article as I'm going to read to you, but in a nutshell, this is what the character in the movie Sneakers, played by, um, he played Gandhi, I can't remember, Ben Kingsley, he gives a really valuable speech at the, in the middle of that movie where he talks about how, you know, he's talking to Robert Redford and they're like positing things and then responding and they used to play this game when they were in college and whatever, whatever. Uh, he says, posit, uh, investors in a, sm a small bank start to believe that the bank is shaky. Uh, consequence, Robert Redford's character says, people start withdrawing their money. Uh, ben Kingsley then says, result, the bank fails. And then Robert Redford says, conclusion, you can cause a bank to fail. And Ben Kingsley goes, eh, I've already done that. Maybe you've heard of some, meaning the savings and loan catastrophe that had just happened when the movie came out. And then Robert Redford starts saying, community banks. And Ben Kingsley just says yes to all these questions. Community banks, yes. Uh, regional reserve banks, yes. Um, commodities markets, yes. Stock markets, yes. Bond markets, yes. Small countries? And Ben Kingsley looks at him and says, I think I just might be able to crash the whole damn system. That's what these people are doing. They are trying to get some fast money today by promoting a thing they know is destined to fail, which is kind of what shorting is in reverse. Shorting, for those who don't know, is when you place a bet. I mean, look, the stock market is just a big casino. Can we just admit that anybody who pretends like the stock market is anything other than a casino is divorced from reality? Okay, that's all the, that's all the stock market is now. You place bets on stuff that you think you might win. You place bets on stuff you think might lose. And it can be on anything. That's what options are. Um derivatives, all of that stuff. Brooksley Bourne warned us, but we didn't listen. So now we're screwed. Um, yeah. So it, they're proving that it's not about reality. And this is something else they say in, in, in uh, sneakers. It's, it's not about reality. It's about the appearance of reality, right? So if you can make it seem like GameStop, which trades under the name GME, Oh my God, I just got an alert on the Washington Post that says GameStop AMC surge after Reddit users lead chaotic revolt against big Wall Street investors. Whoa, it's like the Wall Street, the Washington Post is listening to me. No. Uh, it's This is an actual story, right? Anyway, um, so what they're doing is, yeah, look, everyone knows that, well, that GameStop's going to crash and burn at some point. They're going to die. Blockbuster had to go away and GameStop has to go away at some point. It's the same basic problem. We're just less advanced in terms of our video game technology than streaming movies. But we're getting there. So the point is that they're pretending like there's value in GameStop. And because so many people are pretending like there's value in this stock, it goes up. It's the same thing like the art world, right? 
why is a painting of some woman in a chair worth $10 million? Because a lot of people are willing to pay that. That's it. That's the only reason it's worth anything, okay? Gold is valuable in part because it's a conducting metal, right? Isn't it? Or it's a non-conducting metal? I don't know science. But the point is that there's some, mostly it's just the rarity of it, right? That's why diamonds are valuable. It's because they're rare. Because people are willing to pay a lot of money for them. But that's, that's how a lot of things work in terms of their value. I don't think that ought to be the case. I think it ought to be that things are worth money because they have some value to people beyond just what they might be able to sell it for after they flip it. But that's just my opinion. Uh, and then finally, I want to talk about water as a commodity. And I don't have an article for this, but I want to talk about it because it was on the Colbert Report. I know it's not called that anymore, but that's how I still think of it. Um, but he had a piece about water for the first time ever being traded on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. And that's really scary. Because when people trade things like oil and gold, they can drive prices up. You know, this is what the Reddit, you know, meme market thing shows us that it's not based on anything. It can be hoarding. This is how people make money in stock markets. They hoard, they, they cause panics. They get people to buy based on bubbles and they artificially change the dynamic of the real world thing. So GameStop might open more stores now. I mean, probably not, but they might because they think there's like actual interest, but there isn't. There's just, they're, they're being used by these people who want to make a quick buck in the stock market. And, and that's exactly what's going to happen with water now, which it should not happen with that. Water ought to be off limits for trading because it's something every human needs to survive. And if people are making money by you not having water, that's bad. And that's, there goes my militancy again. I don't believe anybody should be making money off of water. I think it should be available to everybody for free. That's, I'm a communist. I'm a wacky, you know, fruit loop. Um, but, but that's scary and it's not a good thing. And we should demand that they stop trading water. It should be illegal for people to trade water futures because it will inevitably lead to people being denied water that they need to survive. And we're going to end up in Elysium and it's going to suck. So like Greta Thunberg, I want you to be scared. I want you to be angry so that you will take action to make it stop. But I don't ever want to leave you without anything you can do. So as always, I will encourage you to go to Amnesty International. I will encourage you to go to an environmental organization, work with other people, coalition, build, and let's take some action to, um, you know, actually abolish private prisons and to abolish prisons in general, because the penitentiary is a concept whose time has passed and we should not be locking people into cages because they have you know um illegal narcotics or whatever it is right now i heard someone describe themselves as a prison abolitionist light because she said i don't know what to do with serial killers i don't know what to do with you know child molesters and i feel the same way i don't know that i'm ready to totally do away with all prisons forever instantly but I do think that the vast majority of people who are locked up right now should not be locked in cages. We should find other ways to deal. You know, Lisa Simpson said it on The Simpsons, right? When her mom became a cop. Mom, I know your intentions are good, but don't you think we ought to attack the roots of social problems instead of locking people up in overcrowded prisons? And Marge just looked at her and then she said, look, Lisa, it's McGriff, the crime dog. Ruff, ruff. Hello, Lisa. Help me bite crime. And Lisa was like, uh. So, uh, anyway, we should be working uh, together with each other to expand our radical militant empathy and um, 
show love for other people, even when they're hard to love and take care of each other and yourselves. And I'm going to stop talking now. Didactic Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of Ribonucleic Records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOAR for details. Fight the power. So powerful.